to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien, and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, because we've just passed the midway point of the year, we'll be looking back at some of the big cybersecurity stories from the first six months of 2018. And the first thing we're going to take a look at is VPN filter which was probably one of the most significant pieces of malware uh, discovered this year. VPN filter, it's the latest in a series of fairly virulent malware families to affect IoT devices, but it has some key differences to many of its predecessors, such as the infamous Mirai, which caused widespread disruption last year. So Candid, first of all, uh, what is VPN filter? So yeah, VPN filter is one of those classical uh, attacks that you would expect against uh, small office routers uh, from various brands, but also uh, network-attached storage. But as you pointed out, it's not your classical Mirai. So uh, it's not using, uh, at least not yet, any modules for DDoS attacks. Um, What makes it quite unique is that it comes in three stages. Uh, First stage is actually persistent. So even if you reboot your device, the first stage will always be there, and then trying to download further modules down there. The initial uh, infection vector so far, as we can tell, did not use any zero-day vulnerabilities. So it's, again, the classical one through weak passwords like admin-admin or 12345, which people are still using. And of course, a few of the old exploits for those different routers um, are being used as well. So from that perspective, it might not sound uh, like something really interesting, but if you look at the different modules for stage two and three, actually, then it starts to be obvious that it is quite a sophisticated piece of malware. So there's some modules for package sniffing, um, which can look at various traffic being sent through and from the network. They also have a module looking for uh, Modbus SCADA network traffic. So it's not your average uh, kit at home. And they have various communication over Tor, the privacy onion routing network as well. And there's also a disruptive module. So they can actually overwrite a few of the first uh, thousand bytes with garbage and delete all your files. So next time you reboot the device, it all will be gone and probably won't respond. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, it's, it's kind of a step up from some of the... Uh, previous uh, IoT type threats we've seen so far I mean first of all it doesn't go away when you when it when it reboots second of all it can pretty much brick the device if they, if they want to and third it doesn't seem to be used for uh, DDoS botnets or anything like that so like three key differences there and three, three reasons why it's probably more of a kind of an advanced threat than Mirai but you know, if it isn't the next Mirai, what exactly are they trying to do here? What are they using it for, do you think? Yeah, it's still a bit difficult to tell what exactly they want to do with it. Um, but there is one module, um, so-called SSL, which can be used for man-in-the-middle attacks on the device itself. So they will actually be rerouting some of the web traffic, trying to do man-in-the-middle attacks. Um, they could actually inject their own JavaScript or other payloads for anyone downloading something inside that network, so passing on malicious code to to any endpoint behind this uh, router. They also try to downgrade um, any SSL connection to pure HTTP, 
doesn't work always, but in many cases there is still that fallback. So they might be able to intercept a few credentials, uh, steal a few passwords, and all those information can of course be locked and then used for further login. So we assume at the moment it's kind of gathering information and access, but that access could of course be used in a second stage or wave to well disrupt even further. Specifically, if we look at the module uh, going after Modbus for uh, SCADA, so industrial control system, then that's the point where usually people start to get a bit uh, more shaky and say, well, that's definitely not classical cybercrime, but probably rather espionage and sabotage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like it could be used as an initial stage of a, a, a spying tool. And there's been a lot of talk about the destructive um, module in it, and people are saying, well, they could knock out all infected routers at once, but maybe another use is just to c- clean up evidence of infections afterwards to, to cover their tracks if they so choose. So it's a little bit mysterious, but you know, there is a, you know, uh, some evidence there that it may be a spying tool. Um, now, I know lots of people have been asking about this uh, and they're wondering, like, is my router infected or, you know, could it be infected? Uh, what what would you say to them? It is difficult to spot by the naked eye, that's clear. And there's indication that a few hundred thousand devices worldwide are actually affected and still compromised at this moment. So as we talked before, you can reboot your device, which will get rid of stage two and three, but the first stage is persistent, so they will just try again to download it, um, which is kind of just a temporary fix. So what you should do is, of course, once you know or suspect that it is infected, do a factory reset of the device. Make sure you lock or uh, write down anything uh, of the configuration that you had uh, done previously. And then make sure that you update any default passwords. And of course, also make sure that all the firmware and hotfixes are applied. But then again, yeah, it's the question, how do you know if you just want to do the factory reset by default? Well, not everyone might uh, want to take up that time. So we actually created a detection website at Symantec because one of the module, the um, SSLR, will remove a few of the HTTP headers when um, they got contacted by a web server. So those will not be passed back to any of the device behind the router. So our detection website can pick up those uh, differences and can then alert you that most likely your router is infected by the VPN filter and then giving you the steps um, to take those accordant measures. And you can find that page online at semantic.com slash filter check. Filter check. Okay, so you just visit this website and it'll tell you straight away if uh, you're uh, infected or not. Exactly. Just visit www.semantic.com slash filter check and it will tell you if you're infected with this specific module of the stage um, SLR. So of course there is still the chance if you just rebooted your machine that might just uh, be stage one. So if you're really in doubt then probably a factory reset is the safest option. But for all the others, we will tell you um, if we detect any suspicious activity and therefore giving you the guidance what to do next. Okay. Now, let's move on to our next big story of the year, uh, which is definitely about espionage. 
Back in April, we published some new research about a group that we call Orange Worm. Uh, they're a little different to your run-of-the-mill espionage operations, though, because they've got a very particular set of interests. And I think, uh, Bridget, you can tell us more about them. Yeah, sure. So Orange Worm is a new attack group that our attack investigations team um, identified, and we published research about them in, as you said, April of this year. And they're carrying out um, targeted attack campaigns specifically specifically against the healthcare sector and related industries. Um, and they're doing this by installing a custom backdoor called Trojan.Quampers um, onto the systems of these corporations. And once Quampers is executed on a machine, um, it gives the attackers remote access to the infected machines and then it can also spread itself across uh, networks using network shares. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, healthcare seems a very narrow uh, area of interest. Can you tell us anything more about this group and uh, its activities? Yeah, so we published a research um, this year, but it was actually the group was first identified in January 2015. And since then, so it has been active for a couple of years. And since then, it seems to be fairly focused on the healthcare industry and all that time. It has also conducted um, targeted attacks against or other organisations and other sectors. But all of those organisations were in some way related to the healthcare industry. Um, you know, suppliers, that kind of thing, they worked with them. So it would be examples of supply chain attacks, which we discussed in our um, last podcast, actually, and which I think we're doing a special podcast on next week. Um, so, and they just, they were targeting those in those sectors in order to reach the healthcare industry. And known victims that would have been part of these supply chain attacks include pharmaceutical companies, people pro- uh, providing IT solutions to healthcare industries, and as well equipment manufacturers for the healthcare industry. So, in total, 40% of Orange Worms victims are directly in the healthcare industry. And it's very clear that Orange Worms attacks are not random, they're not opportunistic, they're very targeted. They're specifically targeting um, these companies and these organisations in the healthcare industry. Um, and the malware, their malware Quampers, was found on machines, including those with software installed for controlling high-tech devices like X-ray and MRI machines. And they also seem to be interested in um, machines used to assist patients when they're filling out consent forms, which is quite an interesting discovery. And when we look at the activity they carry out once they're on the machine, I mean, it is very clear that it's information gathering that they're interested in. So, I mean, corporate espionage seems to be the, the likeliest motivation for this group. Yeah, so it's less maybe about the patients themselves and more about the the, the equipment's being used and the technology and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, they're kind of a rare uh, espionage group because usually the groups we look at, they're, they're state-sponsored or at least they appear to be state-sponsored. Yeah, you that's know? right. Uh, but these guys seem to be um, kind of private operators. So it's uh, a rare example of a corporate espionage group. Now... Always the question with the, with groups like this is like, uh, are they doing it to order, or are they just uh, engaging in kind of speculative attacks and then trying to steal whatever they find for the highest bidder? But uh, it's very hard to tell, always, isn't it? It is. Now, um, are they um, kind of engaging in global attacks, or are they kind of going after targets in any particular countries? 
Yeah, so they're quite global. The biggest percentage of their victims are in the US. They had 17% of orange worm victims were based there, but they do have victims all over the world, North America, South America, um, Asia, Europe. And that is because of the nature of the organisations they are targeting, because they're mostly large international organisations that have bases all over the globe. So hence, it's very much a global threat. Um, as for their own location, as you said, we don't believe they're state-sponsored, so we don't have any kind of theories about their own country of origin or where they're operating from. Um, so, yeah, we just believe they're a group or an individual or presumably a group of individuals who are carrying out these attack attacks. And another interesting thing about them is that they use network shares to spread crampers um, once they're on a network. And this is considered, you know, quite a noisy way to spread. Um, it can make it more easy to detect activity, detect the suspicious activity on networks. So that's quite interesting because it appears they're maybe not overly concerned with becoming discovered once they access the network. Yeah, yeah, that uh, begs the question of whether they don't really care or whether they think, you know, uh, operational security in healthcare organisations isn't that great, you know, and that they, they're not too worried about being caught. Um, so yeah, it does does beg that question? Yeah, indeed. Now, um, I think the next thing we uh, identified as being one of the big stories of this year, and that we should probably really discuss, is um, one of the most significant vulnerabilities found so far this year: the ominously named meltdown inspector, which are named for an entire series of vulnerabilities that affect a wide range of computer chips and therefore impacted countless computers and other devices. Not only that, but some of them, at least, have proved very tricky to patch. When these vulnerabilities emerged, Candid was one of those people who had to get his sleeves rolled up and take a close look at them. So he's probably the best person to explain just what they are. Yeah, Meltdown Inspector are some very interesting ones. and They kept us beginning, since the beginning of this year busy and still do to uh, this day. And it's the classical new hardware vulnerabilities that we see more and more. And as you mentioned, um, they're mainly impacting Intel chips, but others are affected by it as well. And it's kind of a flaw which is inherent to the design of the CPU. So it goes back to a technique from last millennium for uh, speculative branch execution. And basically the flaw behind it is, is exploits a race condition between memory access and privilege checking of the data. Uh, then it can use some cache side channel attack with timing to actually leak some information. Or maybe to simplify it a little bit, it's misusing that speculative branch execution, which is the, the code itself looks a little bit ahead and checks, oh, maybe in a few milliseconds you will need that data, so I'm already loading it for you so that later on we will be faster in execution, but it does so without checking the privileges at that stage. And later on, an attacker can actually verify if the data has been loaded into the cache or not, and therefore it can leak some information from the memory that you should not have access to. This could be any passwords or any tokens and so on. So maybe the analogy would be um, if you're at the game of poker and you're kind of watching for twitches or reading facial expressions of your opponent, and then try to indirectly guess what his hand is without even seeing the cards, but you can definitely kind of conduct if they have a strong hand or not, and maybe even if they have the two aces uh, that they don't want them to have. And of course, that is quite bad, and you mentioned patching is not so easy, 
specifically as well as they keep getting new variants uh, discovered again and again. So in May, for example, the first, uh, the fourth version of it emerged. So we get more and more that needs to be patched. And some of the systems, well, they're not easy to patch because you might not even know that your smart fridge or any of those IoT devices uses the same chipset as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty complicated uh, vulnerability to explain. Basically, there's a feature in processors that is designed to speed them up. But unfortunately, the data that has been used in that, by that feature could be exposed to the wrong people. I suppose. Is that maybe the best way to explain it in layman's terms? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's using a feature designed to speed up. Uh, and if you misuse that, it actually can leak any memory information or any data in memory to other processes. And of course, that is quite bad. Um, as we mentioned, it's in hardware, so it's difficult to patch, but it also means it applies to all the different operating systems. So it um, doesn't matter if it's on Windows, Linux, Mac OS X, and so on, all those operating systems are actually affected by it. And even a lot of the cloud service providers were impacted by it. And you might say, well, how bad can it be to read out the information? Well, some of you probably remember Heartbleed, um, which a few years down kind of, um, well, opened up a lot of SSL connections and leaked a few tokens here and there. And now the same happens again. So for example, with a small JavaScript inside a browser, someone could actually spy on passwords or cookies from a different tab. So they, if you're on a website and they have a malicious JavaScript, they might actually be able to read out your email's password or maybe a logon for some online banking website and so on. If we apply to the cloud, then of course it's shared environments. So we've seen in the past that very often in the cloud you're running a virtualized system on the same hardware as a few other systems are running as well. But how can you be sure that no one else on that same physical hardware is not using Meltdown or Spectre vulnerability to gain access to your own memory region and maybe re reading out exactly the secret sauce that's keeping all of your data protected. So it can be quite scary, of course. Yeah, I mean, every time a big vulnerability comes out like this, like, you know, we're always uh, trying to sit down and figure out, well, just how bad is this, you know? And I, I think the, really the, the, the cloud scenario is the, the scariest one or the one that has the biggest impact because, like, it mightn't even, like, if a, a cloud service is using a, a vulnerable uh, chip, it mightn't even be somebody hacking into it. They can just, like, open an account themselves and then try and use, leverage that to sniff on other people's accounts. Yeah, which makes it so difficult um, to assess. I mean, we haven't seen any large outbreaks or large attacks making use of those vulnerabilities. They're not so easy to have them reliable um, overall. But as you say, they might just open up an account on a shared environment and use it in their own environment. So it would be pretty difficult to actually notice that it has happened because it's just reading out the information and then they might misuse that information on another path for a second attack wave. And of course, it's also very complex um, since there's a lot of moving parts in between. So with the web browser, we've seen that a lot of them have patched or at least mitigations in place. But now with, for example, the next uh, WebAssembly uh, language changes that are coming up, well, it will reintroduce it. So actually in Chrome or Safari and Edge, it will again be possible to do those attacks. So 
it's not an easy one to patch, but definitely something you should um, keep considering because we probably will see more and more of those attacks. Okay. Now, a few years ago, all of the big vulnerabilities we saw were uh, you know, at the operating system level or in widely used software. And the, this is one of a series of bugs that have appeared kind of more at the hardware level. Is this a trend or is it just coincidence, do you think? I think it's definitely a trend that we see more and more low-level or hardware-level vulnerabilities being discovered. On one side, of course, the researchers are getting more and more interested in those as well, but also the attackers, because if you can actually manipulate something on the level of the hardware, it's a lot more uh, difficult to protect against because anything which comes afterwards can, of course, already be altered because your foundation has changed. And yeah, we've seen a few, like the, the whole row hammer, where you can flip bits in memory due to some physical properties um, of um, RAMs itself. There have been, for example, the Rohammer glitch, which uses uh, GPUs to change a few bits, uh, and they tested it successfully on Android smartphones. And just last week, a modification of that uh, called Rampage appeared as well, where exactly again on Android, the attackers were capable of flipping a few bits, and flipping a few bits is all that's needed sometimes to gain root or administrative rights or change some uh, read-only bit to write and read. And then you have full access to a system. And of course, from there, all the attacker needs can be downloaded and executed. Okay, thanks. Now, our next um, item for discussion uh, is once more about espionage, and it's a mysterious group known as the Inception Framework, which got its name from the extraordinary lengths it goes to to cover its tracks. They've been active since uh, 2014, but over the last few years we've seen them develop some tools, uh, new tools, and engage in fairly clever tactics such as using the cloud and IoT devices in order to make their activities harder to detect. So um, earlier on this year we published some new research uh, on the Inception framework, and maybe Bridget will be able to tell us a little bit more about what these guys have been up to. Yeah, sure. So. As you said, the Inception framework first came, to, its activities first came to light back in 2014. And they were actually first exposed by Bluecoat, which is um, now part of Symantec. And some of the ex-Bluecoat uh, researchers who are now part of the team here in Symantec also worked on this latest research. Um, they stood out even when they first appeared in 2014 um, because of the level of sophistication of their attacks. And it was really a level that we rarely see, um, even in the targeted attack sphere. Um, in 2014, they were using uh, spear phishing emails to target organizations all over the world again, uh, with more than half of its targets, interestingly, in the energy and defense sectors. Um, and at this time, the group was leveraging two Microsoft vulnerabilities in order to install malware on victims' machines. And this malware has a multi-stage structure. And as you said, they were dubbed Inception because of the many levels of obfuscation um, that were used in order to get this malware onto target machines. Okay, and they've really tried, I suppose, to up their game uh, now in, in, in recent years, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Um, after they were exposed in 2014, they fell quiet for a, little, a short period, um, but they returned to activity again in April 2015. And they've remained active then right through to the end of 2017, which is the period that um, is covered by this latest research. And in that time, the group certainly evolved. 
Um, and they seem to be going to even greater lengths to evade detection. Um, its infection process is now two-stage, so it actually sends two emails. It sends, I suppose, a reconnaissance email, and this first. And if that email is opened, then it gathers information about the machine, so about what software is on the machine, and crucially, whether or not is whether or not this software is up to date. And then we assume that this means that um, they're kind of customizing um, their malware it's depending on what they find out in this reconnaissance email and then the group sends a second spear phishing email that actually contains the malware and this is downloaded to the computer if the target opens a malicious attachment and as well as taking these extra steps it has also widened its use of cloud service providers for its CNC purposes um, in the earlier attacks in 2014 it was using cloud service providers, but it was only using one. Whereas now in its most recent attacks, it's using at least five. And again, this is all done to make the activities activities of the group harder to detect because legitimate cloud services are unlikely to be blacklisted by companies. And, but perhaps while they're only using one cloud provider, you know, there might be suspicions around that cloud provider. But I mean, when they're using multiple cloud providers, this just increases the group's stealthiness like stealthiness of their activity. And as well as that, they also use a chain of infected routers, which acts as acts as proxies and they mask the communications then between the attackers and the cloud service providers that they're using. And they string these chains of routers together and they create multiple proxies and they hide behind these. And again, this just makes it harder to trace this activity and they're just so they're leveraging the internet of things basically to help cover up their malicious activity. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I when I saw this research first, I, it was quite remarkable the lengths that these guys were going to to, to cover their tracks. It was like uh, Russian dolls almost. It was you know you'd uncover one thing and then you'd realize they were hiding behind another router, and they were just daisy chaining loads of routers together, and you know that the the number of cloud services they they'd involved, and that's like, you know, again that's the sort of needle in the haystack thing we were talking about the other week, whereby you know like an increasing amount of companies are using loads of cloud services and yeah. even like employees themselves have their own personal cloud accounts so in the you know in that massive traffic back and forward to the cloud you know they, they, they probably think it's much easier to hide um, what uh, kind of targets are the inception framework going after uh, in these recent attacks yeah well their targets sector wise seem to be similar to their targets in 2014 with again the defense and energy sectors one of their main areas of focus um, aerospace sector was also among its targets as well as the government and telecom sectors and also interestingly in these more recent attacks um, the most attacks were in the russia and ukraine but it is still certainly a global based attack groups and they had they did have their victims were based in a number of countries um, so we can't say it's just they're just focusing on one geography specifically. Um, it's definitely an interesting group, though, because I suppose we could deem it an early adopter when it comes to using new platforms like the cloud and IoT to help facilitate its attacks. So this is quite interesting. And, you know, it may sort of demonstrate the sort of tactics that we probably could see other um, attack targeted attack groups using, yeah. you know, as we move yeah, forward. I mean- 
with, with these with these groups, they seem to all be looking at what what each other is doing, and you see, uh, you know, one group adopting a certain tactic, and next thing, within a year later, they're all uh, doing the same kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they, they they really do seem to be kind of uh, trying to uh, push the the envelope a little bit in terms of adopting new te- technologies. Um, speaking of IoT, anyway, um, we've had a few uh, interesting stories this year uh, about IoT security. We always do seem to have lots of interesting stories about IoT security um, as people introduce new connected uh, devices and then uh, users discover some flaws in them. Um, there's been a few cases about uh, smart locks uh, so far this year, hasn't there, Candid? Yeah, exactly. I mean. IoT devices are popping up here and there, we know it, but as soon as you combine it with security, as in physical security, trying to lock things, then that's where a lot of people will look at it, and therefore, if it's not really up to security, most of the times it will actually be discovered. And there was some uh, discussion recently about a smart lock called TapLock Smart Lock. Um, It's sold for about $100 on various places, and it's a small uh, kind of padlock type where um, you can have a few hundred fingerprints stored on it, so it has a fingerprint reader on it to open it, but you can also use your smartphone with an application and then it will lock or unlock it over Bluetooth um, low energy. So at first time, it actually looks quite nice, but of course, people are looking at the quality of it as well, even though it's solid metal. On the back side, there is a small plate, and if you use a little bit of force, you can actually twist open the backplate of it, and once you do that, you get access to the battery. And there's also three little screws, and if you unscrew those, then that's all it takes to actually manually open up the door lock. So there's videos showing it that you can do it in 10 seconds if you have a screwdriver with you. Um, so probably not what you would expect for a padlock for a hundred dollars. Yeah, it's literally a brute force attack then in that case. <laughs> exactly, this is yeah. the, the, the literal brute force attack. But of course, with um, a lot of those smart locks and not just uh, the one from TapLock, we've seen that once you have access to the battery or at least the wires of the battery, you can actually just apply your own battery pack to it and open because most of the time it's an electric uh, motor inside. And as soon as you have the, the matching current, then it will open or lock it again. So we've seen various ones where You just unscrew one or two uh, small plates and then you get access to the wires and you just apply a few voltage, uh, like two uh, nine volt battery packs, usually enough to actually open the door without making any scratches or having to use brute force on them. But the thing which actually made it quite interesting for um, this recent case is you don't even need to open anything with that one. Because, as we said, it actually comes with Bluetooth remote opening and closing as well. So there were some researchers looking at it. How secure is it? Because you need to pair your phone with the smart uh, lock to be able to exchange some information. And then, of course, it will send a key to unlock it. So they were looking closer and they actually discovered that the thing that is exchanged as a key is the MAC address of the Bluetooth um, ad or of the Bluetooth interface of the smart lock. And of course, since it is a radio protocol, it's actually transmitting the MAC address in broadcast. So all you need to unlock is the thing that it's actually sending you voluntarily to you. So they 
did a few checks and you can either do replay attacks if you have been close by or you just pick up the MAC address that it's transmitting to you, use that to generate the key and then send it back, which can be done in under two seconds. So there are now um, small Android applications available that you can use to unlock any of those smart locks in your, let's say, nearby range in under two seconds. And I think that's the scary part, right? Kind of if you can walk around and padlocks here and there are popping open just because you're close to them. Of course, the vendor actually patched it. So there is an update for your firmware uh, being released in June. Question will be how many people know that they should update their firmware on the padlock that you might have on your shed in the garden or so on. But it probably also reminds you that um, when it comes to physical security, I mean, we all know that locks can be picked with lockpicks and so on, but they're probably just slowing down the attackers and you probably shouldn't have the big diamonds guarded by it. Okay, yeah. I mean, I suppose when it comes to security, locks have, uh, you know, the, if, in terms of IoT security, there really has to be a, um, a, a big focus for the developers. Um, okay, I, I think that is all we have time for this week. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or indeed from the Smatic website. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or read our latest research on our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. Or you can also follow us on Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. We'll be back again next week where we'll be doing a special edition on software supply chain attacks. Until then, thank you and goodbye.